In December 2011, USA Today had an article that was identifying a growing group of people in America that they labeled as the spiritually apathetic. Uh, they aren't atheists, but according to this article, they just simply kind of shrug when it comes off comes to God. They're just care less. They're not really interested in religion, not so interested in heaven, uh, even the meaning and purpose of life. It's like, eh. They said it can all be summed up with this growing group of people as, so what? Who cares? So in this article, they gave some different studies that had taken place. Baylor University had a really wide-sweeping study, and they found this, that 44% of the respondents uh, said they spend no time seeking eternal wisdom, and 19% said it was useless to search for meaning. Uh, another study done by LifeWay Research, they found that 46% of those respondents said that they never wonder if they will go to heaven. And the same study said, found that 28% of the people found that it's not a major priority in my life to find deeper purpose. The article is summed up this way by a religious professor, and he concluded this, quote, The real dirty secret of religiosity in America is that there are so many people for whom spiritual interest, thinking about ultimate questions, is minimal. And that's where we're at. We have the spiritually apathetic. There's a guy by the name of James Billington in the Library of Congress. He was the 13th one. He had a very long tenure. He just retired, retired in 2015. And he made this statement. We're living in our contemporary world in an infoglut culture. But his question is this. But have we become any wiser? I mean, we have more information that could possibly be absorbed humanly. But does that make us any wiser? I want you to know that information does not equal transformation. Information, though available in a wide variety of sources, does not equal transformation. And that is especially true when it comes to God and relationship with him. God wants his people to experience, to know, and to express wisdom. And growing in wisdom is central to walking with God. But the question remains, are we actually growing in wisdom? Wisdom is a major theme in the Bible. We saw it last week when we saw in James 3, 13 through 18, where we talked about the wisdom of the world in contrast to the wisdom of God. But it's not only a theme in the New Testament, it's a major theme in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 9. And the book of Proverbs is really wisdom distilled. And it's just sheer, pure wisdom. And you're going to find in chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, this is kind of like a father's appeal to walk in wisdom. And then beginning in chapter 10 all the way through chapter 31, is you're going to find just all these maxims for life, principles for living, general principles, when followed, will yield these results. And it's really a great book. It's got 31 chapters. There's, uh, you know, well, generally about 31 days or so in a month. You could read a proverb a day, and I can assure you, it will fill your life with wisdom. You will live differently, and you'll make better decisions let spending time in this book. And they are these maxims for life. And in what you're going to find when you come to chapter 9 is kind of like the appeal of Lady Wisdom in 
contrast to madam folly. Now, wisdom in the scriptures in the Old Testament is personified by this dignified woman. And she has an appeal. But in contrast, and that's what you're going to find in, in the beginning of chapter 9, but at the end of chapter 9, you're going to find another woman of a far different persuasion. And she is Madam Folly. And the question is, whose invitation are you receiving? Let's make something clear. Your decisions have outcomes. Your choices have consequences. Either good or bad. But we are presently making all sorts of decisions and all sorts of choices. What the book of Proverbs beckons us is to have God at the center of our lives and to walk in the wisdom of his word and experience life in its fullest. And I can tell you that, you know, having been married now for several years, I now fully understand why wisdom is personified as a woman. I mean, it just makes so much sense to me, and it should make sense to you. And so to, let's take a look at it. What role does the wisdom of God have in how you live your life? What role does wisdom have? Well, let's take a look at Lady Wisdom's invitation. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food, and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live, and proceed in the way of understanding. So here we have Lady Wisdom, and she has prepared a grand feast in her beautiful home. It's like a castle, and it's completely perfect. And wisdom is to, the word wisdom has the idea of to apply truth to life, to live skillfully, to live with wisdom. It's to live as God intended for God's glory. And so you have wisdom, and she has this beautiful home that she has built, and it's hewn out of her, out her seven pillars. Seven in Semitic language and poetry has the idea of perfection. I really think that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when, when God had James write his letter, that Proverbs chapter 9 was in his mind when he came to chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Do you remember how wisdom is described? There is a sevenfold description of wisdom. Remember, it's, wisdom is pure, it's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. And so we have wisdom. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Her house is majestic, and look at verse 2. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. There is a feast, and it's got full of awesome food. Wisdom for life, how life is meant to be lived, delicious, tasty. It's like you want more, and she's ready and, and able to provide all that you need. And furthermore, notice she set her table. I remember as a kid, like like my mom would do this, or my grandparents, like we'd go visit them, and they'd have like family members that all come, like for a holiday, like maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas. Sometimes on special occasions. They would set the entire table with all its decorations the night before. And I just kind of walk in and I kind of look like, whoa, we're going to be eating good tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? And they'd been working and cooking and baking for several days. And it, it was feast time. And it was all set up. 
Well, that's how wisdom is. She has it all set up. She's prepared her food. She's mixed her wine. Just, just for you to understand what's taking place here. Uh, in biblical times, they, they had eight parts water to one part wine. That was the ratio. Okay? They mixed their wine as such because they didn't want you to become intoxicated. It had that, that alcohol content had more of a purifying effect more than anything else. And they actually also would mix it with spices to add flavor. The kind of alcoholic beverages that are consumed today, like the wine of today, that would be considered barbaric in biblical time. That would be considered, in the book of Proverbs, it's called strong drink. Only the foolish would do that, or those who are dying in pain would take that. No wisdom. Finally crafted. The food is presented. The wine has been mixed. The table is set up. The feast is right there. And she's inviting people to intimate communion. Look at this, verse 3. She has sent out her maidens. This regal hostess sends out her maidens and she calls from the tops of the heights of the city. This is kind of an important feature because in cities, the Acropolis, the very pinnacle point, the high hill, the top of the mountain, that's where they put the temple. And that's where wisdom is seated. She represents the wisdom of God, God himself, Yahweh. She is at the very top. And now she is calling people to come and to enjoy, to join with her, and to experience this tremendous feast that wisdom offers. And so you find in verse 4, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, come and eat of my food and drink the wine that I've mixed. The naive are those who are simple-minded. They're open-minded. They have yet to make up the decision of which way they're going to go, their course of life. They're impressionable. They're prone to go astray. They are naive. And she is calling out, come my way. Come to the wisdom of God. Forsake your folly. Live. Come. Eat. Drink. Everything is prepared for you. I, I'm inviting you to experience me to the fullest. And I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse 6. You might want to put a mark by it or underline it. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. She calls for you to forsake the habits of the naive. You accept her invitation... But at the same time, you must reject the foolishness that wants to epitomize your life. It's to come to wisdom is not a passive event. It's active. Forsaking, forsaking the foolishness of the world in which you once lived and how you behave, following, following the fallen condition of your flesh, to forsake that folly and now to actively pursue the invitation of wisdom. If you lack understanding, she says, I will provide. And really, she is calling you to recognize wisdom and to internalize it. She wants you to eat of it where wisdom now becomes a part of your life, just like you would consume food. And what that requires of you and I is humility. It requires that we would willingly place ourselves under the authority of God, under the lordship of who he is. It's kind of like, um, like if you were uh, a music student and you find an instructor that is extremely good. Or if you're, if you're an artist, but you really want to learn fine art and you put yourself under like a master's tutelage. What you do for a relationship to really work well is you have to implicitly 
trust your instructor, the master, the one, the woman, or the man who really knows what they're doing. And that's what we do with God. You forsake your folly and you're saying, I am placing myself 100% in your will. I want what you want. I want to follow you. I'm trusting you. I'm done with, with my own folly. I'm, I'm trusting you to guide me and to provide in my life. And God will. God will, through his wisdom, he'll guide your choices. He will govern the development of your character. And God of wisdom, the God of wisdom is so gracious that he actually gives us his strength to do as he's asked. God so desires that we experience the fullness of life as he intended that he gives us wisdom recorded in his word. And he also gives us the empowerment to experience and live it out. And I'll tell you, anything from morality to marriage, from parenting to personal maturity, God addresses in his word, specifically in this book, the book of Proverbs. The question is, how are you going to respond to wisdom's invitation? It says in Proverbs 8, 17, wisdom declares, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Do you really love wisdom? Is that what you really want? Forsake your folly, come to her and live. That's an invitation to life. But when you come to verse 7, verses 7 through 12, it's kind of like this parenthesis. And before you hear the invitation of Madame Folly, there is an invitation to think, to engage your brain, to ponder, to meditate, to understand. And so let's take a look at it. Chapter 9, verse 7. You're going to see that there is going to be this consideration of how you respond to wisdom and truth. Have a look at verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who approves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. You see, wisdom is going to present some rather unsettling truths to your life, especially if you've been walking in the ways of this world, in foolishness and folly. It might be abrasive to you, the stark contrast of going God's way versus the ways of the world. And so your response actually tells you what path you're on. I want you to notice, you see, the scoffer. The scoffer is the unapproachable person. And they always get dishonor for themselves because when someone cares enough to tell them the truth about how they're living, presents wisdom in contrast to the ways that they're going, the scoffer will have nothing to do with it. You see, the root of the scoffer's trouble is pride. They know better. After all, they're the little god of their own life. I'll do it my way, how I want it, when I want it. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me that God said this in his book. That's the attitude of the scoffer. They're not interested in God's wisdom. They're interested in their own way. And so that's why they scoff and they mock. You correct the scoffer, and you know what you should expect? Abuse. That's what will happen. You try to correct, in gentleness, the person that's going the way of folly and foolishness, wickedness even. And you should expect that if they're truly a fool, they will malign you, they will 
misrepresent you and they will mock you. After all, you are confronting their behavior. You're actually telling them there's God's way and they really don't want a lot to do with him. They don't believe that God really has consequences for their behavior. And so you go to them and they're going to misrepresent you and your character. A scoffer will hate you. But I want you to notice this. Look at the wise man. Look at that end of verse 8. You reprove a wise man, and what will the wise person do? They will love you. Why is that? Because a person who is wise, a wise woman, not a wise guy, but a wise man, they are growth mindset people, continuous improvement. They know that there is growth that is needed in their life, and they have the prerequisite humility of their life to want to receive instruction. To, yeah, if you want to correct me because I'm not doing something right, I know that you love me enough to tell me the truth. And friends, they, they gather and they appreciate these people. And I want you to know something. Whether or not you're walking in wisdom has nothing to do with your intellect. It has everything to do with your attitude. Sometimes we think like, man, you're really smart. You got a real high IQ. Well, you're just going to be wise. That's not the case. Several years ago, 2006, in July of 2006, there was a world-famous geneticist by the name of William French Anderson. And he was convicted of child molestation charges. And at a press conference with his attorney, after he had been convicted and found guilty, his attorney said this, quote, Nothing about having a 176 IQ means you have good judgment. Just because you're smart, you can do well in school, you can get a good grade on the test, that you have an awesome score in your SAT or your ACT or your GRE. You're, just because you've got degrees, you have, you've, you've had a lot of experiences of life, you've been around some really smart people, is no guarantee that you're wise. You see, wisdom requires an attitude of humility. Not trusting in your intellect, trusting in God and his wisdom. And the wise person, they seek advice. They want, they want understanding. They're growth mindset. They're continuous improvement kind of people. And really, if you want to be wise, you want to be teachable. I want to learn, no matter what age you are at. So he says, though, verse 8, though, you reprove a scoffer, they're going to hate you. So I'd like to ask, where are you at? How do you respond to correction by your parents? Uh, your teacher, your coach, um, maybe a pastor. How do you respond to correction? You mock, you shred, you disown, you got all these reasons why they're wrong, or do you go, man, thank you for caring enough to help me. Help me take these next steps forward. You see, friends, your response is the litmus test to indicate whether you're feasting on wisdom or you're fasting on foolishness. John Orford kind of had this kind of crazy statement about spiritual growth. And he said this, trying to grow spiritually without hearing the truth about yourself from somebody else is like trying to do brain surgery on yourself without a mirror. Like, I'm sorry, how, how would you even come up with such an idea without a mirror brain surgery? But that's what it's like if you think that you're going to grow spiritually without having people in your life that can speak truth in your life and will care enough to correct you. Friends, you're mistaken. 
when people do try to speak in your life and to help you, and you mock them, malign them, misrepresent them, you, you treat them bad, poorly, it's an indicator you're responding like a fool in that instance. You see, humility leads to teachability, and that's what we need in order to really grow. If you're going to go on the path of wisdom, if you're really going to bring wisdom of God into your life, you've got to be humble and teachable. And friends, we really, don't you want the truth? I mean, think about it. Don't you want your doctor to tell the truth? Don't you want your mechanic to tell you what it really is? Don't you want your pastors to tell you the truth? Or your friends? Of course you do. Why? Because this matters. You don't want them just feeding you a bunch of lies. You want truth. Friends, that's what wisdom is. It's truth from God, and this is how we live. And when you come to verse 10, you might want to underline it, certainly put a star by it, because, friends, this is the theme of the entire book of Proverbs, and it is also the key to accepting wisdom's invitation. It all comes down to verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's the fear of the Lord. It is, it is reverencing God and being in a relationship with God where you want to respond to Him. Why is it, though? And you, you need to make sure you can answer this question. Why is it that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge and understanding? And I'll, let me make sure you understand this. The reason why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is because true spirituality and God-honoring morality begins with a reverence and a humility before your Maker, your Redeemer, as He's revealed Himself in the Word. The reason that the fear of the Lord is so critically important, that you have a true reverence and awe of God, is because there's no such thing as spirituality. I understand that's, that's a really un-PC statement that you're making. You know a lot of people disagree with you? I know. But God knows that if you really want spirituality, real life, real relationship with the living God, it's only found in Him and through His Son. And there is no such thing as God-honoring morality apart from a reverence for God. And what do we got? We have a forsaking of God, we totally diss His ideas of morality, and what do we have? We have chaos in our society. Why? Because we will not have God. 9-10 is the theme of this book. And really, it determines whether you walk in wisdom and morality or not. Remember, you see, the fear of the Lord is kind of like a two-sided coin. On one side, you have a deep-seated reverence and recognition of the holiness of God. On the other side of the coin, you have the idea of loyalty, of covenant, of loving relationship, of responding well to God. So on one side, you have holy reverence. On the other side of the coin, you have loving response. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. See, God not only gives us principles for life on how to really live life as he's intended, he even gives us power, his strength to do as he's asked. There's a, a guy by the name of Lee Eklov, and on the subject of the fear of the Lord, he, he wrote something that was so good, was very helpful from my understanding. I, I wanted to share it with you, share with you this morning. He said, you know what, I used to think that living in the fear of the Lord is like driving down the street while watching the policeman in the rearview mirror. Okay, and you know how that is? I mean, I'm always doing this. When I see a policeman, I mean, I'm really 
getting everything in the right position. I try to stay focused, you know. I'm like looking immediately at my speedometer, and I'm hoping I'm within the range. I want you to know, I have no tickets in the state of Texas. Praise God, okay? And what happens though, there's, I've got this healthy fear of policemen, and, and, and I'm like doing this, and I'm like trying not to make eye contact, and I'm sitting there, and as soon as I pass them, right, rear view mirror, I'm waiting to see if the lights go on, they come pulling out behind me, right? I'm just like, no, I don't want to do this, okay? I learned my lesson younger, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's, I got this fear of the policeman, right? And you guys, obviously, you do the same thing, I'm going to be laughing, right? But let's, listen to what Lee said, he says, but actually, there's a better picture of the fear of the Lord. It's like a teenage driver who suddenly spots her father's car in her rearview mirror. Seeking him back, seeing him back there puts her on notice to be on her best behavior, to use her blinkers and to stop at the yellow light and to keep both hands on the wheel. But it also tells her that her father cares enough to follow her. It tells her that she is safe. Her father isn't trying to trap or trick her. He's trying to help her develop good habits. Not just to be careful on this trip, but to obey the law and stay safe until she gets home. She's driving on her home on her own, but not completely on her own. So it is for the people of God. The fear of the Lord means we live life with our Heavenly Father always in our rear view mirror. We glance up and see His brilliant holiness, but also His care and love. Our response, the fear of the Lord, is a mix of reverence, trust, and love. It all comes down to if you really have a healthy awe and reverence and love for God. If you really want to walk in His ways, you want to obey Him. Friends, it makes all the difference. In fact, verse 11 says, For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. You see, wisdom is saying, Listen, you go my way, your days will be multiplied. It's like you will not only have more years to your life, but you'll have more life to your years. You're not just kind of making it through another year. You're experiencing life and the years that God has given you. Don't you want that? Well, that's all found in wisdom. And verse 12, it says this. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. You see, ultimately, if you're wise, you're the one who benefits most. It's like you get the first fruits of wisdom. Others may benefit by you being wise. That's usually how it works. But you first and foremost benefit. And on the other hand, if you go in folly and foolishness and you disregard the wisdom of God because you're so interested in the ways of this world, guess what? If you scoff, you mock, you won't have it, you alone will bear it. Whether you're going to be a winner or a loser, really, that choice is yours. That's how it works. And, you know, if you're making foolish decisions, you're walking with the appeal of Madam Folly, you're forsaking lady wisdom, you're going to pay the highest consequence, but you're also going to drag a lot of other people with you. The degree people are close to you, and you got influence in their life, if you're going down the path of foolishness, wickedness, and scoffing, the degree that you're going to have havoc, not only in your life, but in the lives of others. So how is your heart responding to the wisdom of God? Like in your family, in your decisions, at school, with your friends, at work, with your neighbors. I mean, do you know just the beautiful fruits, the great meal that wisdom provides? 
I mean, there's so many benefits of going in the wisdom of God. When you go through the book of Proverbs, and I've spent a lot of years just trying to read a proverb a day, it is, it's just filled with all sorts of blessings. For instance, there's perception. God gives you wisdom so that you have an accurate perception of life. There's prevention. You see, when you listen to wisdom, it'll prevent you from doing self-destructive things. When you look at God's wisdom and you want to go his ways, there's a, there's a peace and an enjoyment to your life. It's very interesting, in the book of Proverbs, there is a clear correlation that going with God's wisdom yields, like, to a degree, prosperity in your life. Now, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel that God just wants you rich, so you believe in him and he's just going to make you rich. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is that you go with wisdom, you probably start making wise choices with your money. You live below your means. You're a generous. You become a conduit of blessing. You honor God with your wealth. You also find in the book of Proverbs that what wisdom will do is give you what we could call poise. That calmness and confidence that comes with walking with God. I mean, you see, you see like a lady that's just got a lot of wisdom or a guy who has a lot of wisdom. There's just something about their life and the calmness and the confidence and the stability that they have with God. You know where that comes from, don't you? It's like being seasoned with wisdom or like a tea that's just been steeped and it's dark and it's rich. That's what wisdom does. You just let it keep seeping into your life. You start flowing with wisdom. Wisdom also gives you protection. It keeps you safe. And it also gives you what we could call prudence, where you exercise discretion. You make careful choices, and you see the need to hold back. Yeah? Others might be encouraging you to do that. All your friends say, yeah, this is the life, man. But you've got wisdom. And you're like, nah, I can see past the next 10 minutes or the next two hours. You think through life. You've got prudence. You know when to hold back. Who wouldn't want it? Peace, confidence, prosperity, understanding, a good sense of direction, protection, rewards. If you, if you want that, is anybody interested in that besides me? Okay, i got a few of you. Let me tell you where you find it. Respond to lady wisdom. you got to understand, your behavior and your choices, they always have results. Your choices have consequences, for better or worse. Your choices have outcomes. The question is, what are you going to decide? And wisdom wants to guide and govern your choice so they experience God's best. All behavior has a corresponding result. And so, friends, what we want to do is we want to be steeped with, steeped with wisdom, like to be in his word. You want to have friends that have wisdom, God's wisdom in your life. There is such a synergism. These are the best and the richest relationships where you're growing in wisdom together. You want to listen to music that extols God and, and, and has wisdom presented. You want to experience ultimately that as you're going through life, like wisdom is being engaged in your mind as you're processing and making decisions, the small and the great. Friends, this is an invitation to think to engage your mind and respond to Lady Wisdom's offer. But there is another offer. There's another lady. Her name, we could call her Madame Follow. And she also has an invitation. It's an invitation to death. Let's take a look. Verse 13. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high place of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And him who lacks understanding, she says, 
Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of Sheol. You see, if you reject wisdom's feast, you're going to settle for folly's fast. And she's also got an offer to those who are trying to make their way straight. They're simple. They're naive. Some of them are like, I'm trying to do it right. And there's others that are like, just tell me where the next party is, man. It's all about me and what I feel and my impulses and my flesh. And, and she's calling out. She's also got a message. And it sounds pretty similar. If you're naive, I can help you out. You want a good time? You come to me. Notice how she's described. She's described as foolish. She's scandalous. She's trapped in sin. She's boisterous. She's loud. She's rough. She's tumultuous. She's going to the naive, and she's naive herself. She's undisciplined. She knows nothing. Her character is empty. She may be attractive, but she is unruly. And she's calling out to these people who are trying to make their lives straight. They're trying to just move forward, and she's got a message. And what she does is the foolish woman promotes the attractiveness of what is forbidden. Do you see that? Look at her message. Verse 17. Stolen water is sweet. And this is likely a euphemism for forbidden sexual relations. Madam Folly is very much like Proverbs 7, that woman, the adulterous woman found in Proverbs chapter 7. I encourage you to read it. It may not be a, a, like probably your top 10 family devotions this week, but you might want to read it. Now, I want you to see how she operates. Well, here she is. Stolen water. Intimate relationship. That's wrong. Sweet. And bread eaten in secret. Why, it's pleasant. You see, what Madame Folly does is she appeals to this depraved instinct in humanity. There is something about our flesh that if it's wrong, we want it. If God says, this is not holiness, this is not how to live, we're like, but I want it. That would feel so good. It seems to be the path of the happy people that I watch on TV. I heard some others doing this. I want this. Well, friends, it's a lie. It might seem sweet for the moment, but it's going to lead to death. You see, Lady Wisdom offers food that will nourish you for life, a deep, well-meaning, full life. Madam Folly, foolishness, it's wickedness, and her, her guests are going to be in the depths of Sheol. That's the place of death in the Old Testament. It's where, for the wicked, it's a place of no return, of darkness and torment. And so I want to ask you, whose invitation are you regularly receiving in this life? I mean, each one of us, we're making decisions on our priorities, what we're going to do with our time, what our family's going to look like, what our marriage is going to be like, like uh, how we're going to conduct ourselves at work, in this church, in this community. You and I are always making choices and decisions, and there are outcomes for those choices and the decisions. You're figuring out what you're going to do with your time, with your money, with your experiences. Friends, the gospel is the key to growing in the wisdom of God. The gospel tells us you have to come to the end of yourself so that you will trust in Christ and Christ alone. You come to Christ for forgiveness, for hope, for life. Remember from Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 when it speaks of Christ, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you want wisdom? Do you want knowledge? I'll tell you where it's found. It's found in the relationship and the person of Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord 
So your response to God, specifically to his Savior, is really telling you what path you are on. You see, the wisdom of God finds its complete expression in the person of Christ. And so, which path are you on? I'd just like to ask you, what are you doing with the wisdom that God is offering? Or are you just kind of going with the Madame Folly path? And it's a path of wickedness and death. You might want to write this down. Decision determines destiny. Decision determines destiny. Your choices, the choices that you're making, they're going to have an effect. Ken Sandy, in his book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, uh, talks about an, ex- an occasion where he was observing a woman walking, who was blind, walking with her seeing eye dog. And uh, if you've ever seen these seeing eye, seeing eye dogs, they're, they're fascinating. The, these animals, they're so well-trained, they have such love and care for their owner. And on this particular occasion, as he's watching this blind woman and this beautiful golden retriever walking, um, there was a car that was parked uh, in this driveway, and it was cutting across the sidewalk. The dog, of course, seeing, does exactly what uh, he's trained to do, and he stopped briefly and then nudged his owner's knee to the side. And that's the the clue, you need to turn. There's something in your path. And of course, this lady apparently walked the sidewalk multiple times, and she knew, like, this isn't where we turn. And she, like, pushed against and just gave the order to keep walking. A couple of paces later, the dog does the exact same thing. And she, like, starts yelling at her dog. And they're getting close to the car. This guy was actually going to call out. He watched the dog do the exact same thing, stop, and forced this woman's knees. And this woman was mad at her dog, so she kicked the dog. And then... She took the next impulsive step forward, and she ran into the car, and she puts her hands out, and she's feeling it, and she realizes there's a car, and immediately she fell to her knees and started weeping and sobbing and saying words into the dog's ear. Friends, I tell you that, because what is God's wisdom in your life? It's like a gentle nudge. God is trying to turn you before you walk into danger. The question is, will you respond? Or are you just going to kick the dog? Or are you just going to forsake God because you know better? I want you to understand something. Wisdom available does not mean wisdom applied. Just because you got wisdom in this book, just because you have wise people in your life, or you made wise decisions in your life, does not mean that you're making wise decisions now. Wisdom available does not mean wisdom applied. When you look at the Bible, most of the people that blow up their lives do it in the second half of life. Yeah, they've been walking with God and doing wisdom, but for whatever reason, they got tired or yeah, and they're done that kind of mentality, and they they made some tragic missteps. There's forgiveness, but there may be some consequences you're not going to like. You see, the difference between living and living well has everything to do with what you're doing with Jesus Christ. If you have fear, holiness, respect, love, obedience. You see, the wisdom we follow is shown by the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing chapter of the Bible. Right there, the invitation to wisdom in contrast from Madame Folly's foolish words that lead to destruction in our lives. 
God, we need your grace and strength to walk in your ways. Humility, teachability. Father, for someone who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Christ, where they've been walking in the ways of foolishness and even wickedness, and you got their full attention, where they just pray with me now and say, God, I, I forsake folly and my sin. I've turned from it, and I'm trusting in Jesus this morning. And I'm asking him to be the Lord of my life because I want to experience your wisdom, your ways. And Lord, for all of us, we want to walk in your ways so that we might know the goodness of you all of our days, that our lives would be a reflection of your wisdom and our lives would bring you great glory. Only you can accomplish this. So this we ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.